Hello, I'm Jared Dufresne, the author of Heart Driven, and I'm here with you today to read my book in its entirety. I would like to start off by reading the back cover of the book so that you have a great idea about what the book is about. God is love. Love must be chosen. Love must be given. Love must accomplish its goal. If we were ever able to understand those simple truths, all that we have come to believe about Him would change. All of our doubts would be removed, all of our questions answered. We would begin to realize that He's not just an engineer, judge, or puppeteer in the sky. We would realize that there truly is more to God than we've come to believe. That in truth, He's not much different than us. Now, before you take that to the wrong place, let me help a bit. What often drives our actions more than any other thing? Our hearts, whether to good or to bad. Why? He has placed eternity in the hearts of all men, Ecclesiastes 3.11. And with it has come a tendency to be driven by it. The only problem for many of us is that it is a desperately wicked heart, Jeremiah 17.9, doing the driving. But God has another plan. Make our hearts like His. That's the only way to ever truly find life in this world and to accomplish His will here on earth. Yes, like us, God has a bank of knowledge that aids Him in everything He does. And His wisdom is so much greater than any wisdom of our own. But for all of it, for all of His unlimited knowledge of things that are and are to come, it is the relentless love of His heart that drives Him. And thus He remains desperate for us and will pursue us with all He has until the days of our lives come to an end. Chapter 1, Love God's love, inconceivable, unexplainable, indescribable, perfect. How can we know it? How can we begin to speak of it? There's no word deep enough to describe it. So, in an attempt to, one was made, agape. A word not even found in the Greek language until he was written of. It is something that has baffled us since the beginning. No one can truly understand it to its absolute fullest. It is unselfish and unrelenting. It is all-consuming. Every desire, every longing met in his arms, leaving us without want. It is pure, without spot, without wrinkle, and without a single blemish. And it must be given. True love has to be. It must accomplish its goal. It searches for a recipient, for without one it would seem to fade. Is it not the reason behind it all, the reason I'm here writing to you now, the reason there is breath in my lungs, the reason there is beauty outside my window and why I have to be joined to it somehow? For not to search for it would appear foolishness, madness even. It is there, calling, always, and to silence its voice is nothing short of madness. To be restored to the source of that call, of that beauty, of that love, what more could a heart ever want? What more has it ever searched for? And search man has, again and again and again. Yet for all of it, for all of his substitutes, nothing has fulfilled. He's looked to the creation rather than the creator, searching the wind, searching the sky, searching the earth, thinking there perhaps it could be found. He has run into the arms of other lovers time and time again, only to be found still in want. And for all of his grasping, he has found that there is no substitute for what is perfect. Only the vanity of counterfeits at best. So from somewhere deep within, aware of it or not, we search 
every one of us, for what our hearts believe can be found. If it is real, all of it, then there has to be a source. And if it is broken, all of it, and we know it is, then there has to be a Redeemer. There has to be a way back to life. So, somewhere deep within, perfection haunts. What we know we could be, what we long to be. Eternity has been placed in the hearts of all men, and with it a longing to be restored to it. We know there is goodness, and even if faint, the desire to be consumed by it calls to us. But the path has been broken, a great fall has come, and now we search with blinded eyes, hoping to get a glimpse, believing that surely there must be a way. And alas, for all of our longing, for all of our grasping, we find that indeed there is. A way has been made, a way to a redemption, and we find it carved to the blood-stained hands of the very love that we have tirelessly searched for. Love has made a way. It always does. Chapter 2, Love Creations So how did it begin? Imagine this. You're there with so much to give, but no one to give it to. And you have the ability to create something that could receive exactly what you long to give. Wouldn't you? And not just once, but again and again and again. For when you are defined by something, is it not your very nature to do just that? To give what is most true of you and what is at the very core of who you are? If we were to peel back the layers of this world and the universe that surrounds it, what would we find? There at the center of it all, what heart would we find beating? Out of the laughter of the Trinity, man was created. From the joy of our eventual existence, we were formed. Out of perfect love, we first became thought. Remember, love has to be given. God is love. So he formed, he molded, he designed, until an object capable of fully receiving all that he desired to give took shape. And what better way to ensure its ability to receive love than to make this object in his own image? Thus we were formed in the image of love and made able to receive all that he longs to give. Joy, peace, a heart fulfilled. We all have the capacity to know such things, to allow such things to search out and meet our every desire. That is the beginning of knowing perfect love. John wrote of it, Paul spoke of it, and Jesus himself summed it all up with it. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may, be, may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John chapter 15. To love God and to love each other with that same love, this has become man's all. And now through the outpouring of outstretched hands and through the rising of his broken body, we, if we only would believe, have been made capable of this once more. God, through the sacrifice of his Son, has given us the ability to love him, not just with a part of ourselves, but with all that we are, with the full image of whom he first created. And thus the fulfillment of God's greatest desire can be met, sitting atop all of his great commandments. Love me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. In other words, love me like I'm supposed to be loved. Chapter 3, Heart versus Head. And I just want to pause and say from the author, that last chapter is one of my favorite chapters in the book, and this next chapter may be my most favorite. 
and this chapter is entitled Heart versus Head. There is a knowledge too great for comprehension. This is our struggle. We observe a God with the ability to see and know all things which are, which have been, and which will be. Yet he has continued. Despite his knowledge of all of our failures, and what great sorrows they will bring him, he has proceeded as planned. What could drive someone to such a thing? To continue to create the very creatures that will one day become the source of their greatest pain as they betray the Creator's own heart. Astounding, yet true. So what do we do with that? How do we make sense of it all? God's problem is not that God is not able to do certain things. God's problem is that God loves. Love complicates the life of God as it complicates every life. If God is to get at the greatest sources of human misery, which is certainly related to sin in the biblical perspective, God must, being love, enter upon a plan or economy more complex and indirect than the simple meting out of justice. It is an approach which is not only complex but costly, for it means that God's power has ultimately has to ultimately articulate itself in divine solidarity with the sufferer, that is, in the quote-unquote weakness of suffering love. God will never force us to love him. For him, that would defeat the point. For what he desires is true love, and true love can only be chosen freely. So he's given us choice, and with all that is in him, hopes that we will choose to love him. One of the strongest characteristics of love is that it does always hope from 1 Corinthians 13.7. This is one of the greatest driving forces behind all that God does. We see it time and time again as we read through his word, a hope birthed from love. We first see it with the creation of man. He has given all. God's greatest desire has been met. Someone to love who could freely reciprocate the same, the very same love. But like a thorn in his heart, the knowledge of what's to come haunts him. Like a lover faced with the fact that he must ultimately confront his wife's unfaithfulness, so must God's foreknowledge have left his heart in ruin. His heart in ruins. So what causes the husband to go on loving when betrayal is certain? Hope. Hope that maybe somehow what he fears most would not come to pass. It is a hope that in the end love will prevail, so he continues almost as if he has taken a blind eye to what is to come. Only something that is pure, something that is holy, something that is perfect could allow for such a thing, the heart of God. And that is what we see as we read about him, that God is and will always be more heart than he is head. Yes, he has astounding knowledge that we cannot comprehend, yet for all of it, it is the love, it is his love that drives him. Keep this in mind, mankind's betrayal was not the first. In fact, the first fall came long before our own, and when we consider the weight of it, it is astonishing that God ever chose to risk his heart again. There, seated near the highest place of honor, was found the first to rebel, God's most beloved angel, Lucifer. For him, heaven wasn't enough, and love didn't satisfy. Perhaps he had an inability to know love fully as we do, not having been made in his image. Regardless, he was the first to break the heart of God, but certainly not the last. With Adam and Eve, mankind's line of betrayals began, and oh, how many have there been since? At one point, it became almost too much for God to bear. I will destroy man who I have created from the face of the earth, for I am sorry 
that I have made them. Genesis 6-7 All of earth's inhabitants has become wicked, and every intent of their hearts were continually evil. God himself was sorrowful that he ever even made the choice to follow through with their creation, although knowing full well that their betrayal would occur. When finally faced with the reality of it, his heart burst, and in the moment the only remedy seemed to be to remove the source of his pain. But wait. Genesis 6-8 Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It was not the end. Mankind had not breathed his last. The love story would continue. All because of one man. One man left the love. A just, blameless man who God could choose as a recipient of his perpetual love. It doesn't take much with God. One small glimmer of hope and he will latch on to it with all he's got. One heart that is still his and he will use it to build an entire nation or even world. He always has a remnant. A remnant, a set-aside people, even if just one man, to perpetuate what he has begun and certainly intends to finish. God has a plan, and regardless if we believe that, that it can be thrown off course, it shall come to pass. He knew all along that Noah would be there to, to be used to save us all, but he also knew that the rest of the earth will become wicked. Yet something in him still drove him and still allowed him to proceed. Perfect love, it must be given we get another glimpse of the reality of his heart-driven love as he interacts with the first of his chosen ones, the Hebrew children. It begins with Adam. Take your son, your only son, and slay him. Genesis chapter 22. Abraham's response? Silence. He responded to God's request with silent obedience. Now I know there are many conclusions as to why God requested such a thing of Abraham, but I would like to submit another one. True love must be tested. It has to be. Otherwise, how can it be known if it is real? I mean, why was that tree in the garden anyway? In this we see why man has been given the choice. Only something chosen freely can be genuine, and throughout history, it is genuineness that God has searched for. Something from the heart. Isaiah 29 and Mark 7 shows us that these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. So God gave Abraham his choice. If you love me truly, then you will do what I ask of you. And in one of the most unselfish acts in all of history, Abraham did just that. But in the very last moment, as the blade hovered, love was validated and God relented, having received his answer and now able to show the world that Abraham truly was a man of astounding, unwavering faith. Yes, here... The righteous judge longed for reverence, for awe, for acknowledgement, and for submission. But the holy lover longed for true love and rejoiced when it came. And then there's Israel. Where to begin? Every emotion we could ever imagine God seemed to experience as he dealt with them. If their story doesn't show us that God truly has heart and is driven by it, perhaps nothing will. The storm of emotions that he went through and how he was greatly affected by their actions certainly show us an essential side of who he is. Joy, anger, sorrow, outrage, just a few to be named. One thing God can never be branded as is indifferent. Yes, he is the judge, but he is also the jury. His heart can be stirred, either to compassion or to anger, and sometimes he appears to make decisions based on that stirring. Just look at his reaction to their blatant disregard of the very first commandment he gave them. Have no other gods before me. 
He had just set them free, and right before he gave them his list of instructions on how they were to be his separate people, he reminded them of it. What he was saying was, do not forget, if you always remember what I did for you, it won't be as difficult to live up to my standards. So what is the first thing they did? Forgot. And it only took 40 days. For some of us, it seems to be much shorter. God was enraged. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may destroy them. Exodus 32.10 He was done. He had done everything in his power to convince his people that he was their God, and he had set them free from years of slavery, given them riches from the very people who had held them captive, parted the sea right before their eyes, and then drowned their enemies in it. Yet still they were not convinced. And after just a short time of him leaving them to themselves, they decided it wouldn't be a bad idea to go ahead and make a God of their own. You can almost feel the anguish through his words. He had pursued his love with great passion. He had lavished her with all that she was in need of. He had defied nature to keep her safe, and he had rescued his beauty. Yet still she pursued someone else. What pain that must have caused him. What pain that causes us. The anger from within his heart had to speak, and in the moment the jealous lover decided to do away with almost all that he loved. But then someone spoke, a mediator to help bring God to a calm, a defendant, Moses. We read in the book of Exodus how he pleaded with God to please remember all that you have spoken and promised. Exodus thirty-two twelve, Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. God's reaction in verse 14, the Lord relented from the harm he said he would do. He did remember, and thus the fury of his heart subsided. It was almost like he could think straight again. We sometimes see this part of God in ourselves. Something drives us to intense anger in the moment we react hastily with words or actions. But if someone is able to quickly calm us down, usually we react in a much more sensible way, resolving the issue with a much more concise method. For God, that concise method was only killing 3,000 of them. The promise of future punishment and a plague, lessons surely not soon forgotten. But in all this, we see how God is a God of plan and promise. And his faithfulness will never allow him to break covenants he has made with man. Even in his anger, he spoke out to Moses, I will make of you a great nation. God's righteousness keeps his heart in check, never allowing him to be completely and mostly driven at any point. He always has his divine plan in the back of his mind and all he does. His sovereignty will not allow him otherwise. That being said, part of God's original plan was to reach the world through the nation of Israel. We first see this promise given to Abraham. In you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. God's plan was to continue revealing himself throughout the earth by the creation of a separate holy people whom he could richly bless. He also promised to send them a perfect king who, unbeknownst to them, by his own sacrifice and resurrection, would purify them of all of their sins. This king would rule and reign with them forever, restoring all things to himself and creating a perfect kingdom upon the earth. And God did exactly that. And they betrayed him. The king had come and the offer was made, but he was rejected. God was livid. And because of their heart hardness and constant refusal to remain faithful, God blinded them. And thus, through their darkness instead of their light, eventually the offer of salvation would be extended to all, found in Romans chapter 11. God had had enough. He was through trying to work through a stiff-necked, stubborn people. He was exhausted. I love you. 
I can't stand the sight of you. I love you. You make me so angry. I love you. I will destroy you. So many times the heart of God twisted and turned from one emotion to another as he dealt with his own people. Promising annihilation and then relenting with mercy. Promising destruction and then giving hope of restoration. Time and time again we saw the cycle repeated. Till finally one day he just shut their eyes and revealed himself to everyone else. Found in Romans chapter 11. The Christian would now become the vessel that God would use to show the world his love. He didn't just throw everything away. He had a plan and it had to remain intact, even if the method of its fulfillment had to be altered. His love is too great not to give and his glory too magnificent not to reveal. And in the end, despite all their harlotry, even Israel will receive their salvation and king and all that God vowed to them. True love never breaks a promise. I just want to pause here for a second. And I know there's a lot of schools of thought when it comes to God's sovereignty versus man's free will. Um, there's Armenian type philosophies. If you guys are familiar with the subject, um, there's also Calvinistic type theologies. And actually a lot of that discussion and, and thinking points is what drove me to, to write, not just write the book, but seek um, his heart first and then write the book. And so I just want to say that even though I'm painting a picture, so, and you'll, you'll see this here in a minute as we go on with this chapter, but what I'm doing here is I'm painting a picture not of what God is not, but of what he most is. What he most is, is heart-driven. Is he sovereign? Absolutely. Is he a hot-headed, just off-the-handle, emotionally driven, not able to be trusted because of that God? Absolutely not. Um, again, I go back to it. He's kind of like us, right? We, we have knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. We love people. We love our children. We love others. But we're also, we have emotions, and, you know, we, we have to learn to keep them in check. Um, God keeps them in check through his sovereignty and through things that he's already put in place. Um, his, his sovereignty is, is, is so great. It is, it is what makes him God, right? That's what separates him from us. Um, even though we may be heart-driven, we're not sovereign. He is. And so his plan always remains intact. Um, he has he chosen people yes he's chosen i believe he's chosen groups of people and i even believe he elects certain people um to enact his plan through but um i do still believe that his love is for all um because again remember god is love love must be given but love must be chosen and that's really the point of it all and so god's heart his desire um being what he most is being love, his heart and his desire is to have that love reciprocated. You you could order a um, a someone from Russia or wherever and 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 say, okay, you're going to be my wife and you just going to love me, and that may fulfill some temporary desire in your heart, but in reality, it's 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 not what you want. It's you want someone to love you because of who you are, not because of what you've made them to be. And you need to understand that, that the whole point for God is that's it. That's, that's the, that's the plan is, is to make our hearts like his to, to redeem and restore. Um, God, like any of us, he just wants to be loved back. That's it because of who he is. And again, this is not dismissing God's sovereignty in any way. God has a plan. It will stay intact. God's not, 
changed because of what we do. He doesn't he doesn't change, you know, his 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 nature or character anyway because of what we do. But he's you know he we were, again remember we're made in his image, right? And so in the the way we are made in his image is not in his sovereignty, right? But it's it's in our our hearts and the ability to be driven by them and love through them and you know now god is perfect we're broken so through christ that's the whole point of that's what sanctification and all is is us becoming like christ to learn to how to reciprocate love to to him and to others and that's what that's what this journey the christian life is all about so just wanted to to throw that in there and i'm going to start reading again here which we're about halfway through by the way so this is by far the longest chapter in the book we see all of this played out in the story of Hosea. In order to show us how real the battles within his heart are, God devoted an entire book to it. Nothing reveals the struggles of his heart better than this story. Here, just so that we can begin to understand what he endures and learn more of who he is, he does the unthinkable and asks one of his faithful prophets to marry an adulteress. His disdain at all is found in chapter 3, verse 1. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover who is committing adultery. Just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who looks to other gods and love, loves the raisin cakes of the pagans. You can hear the disgust and jealousy in his voice. Not only were they seeking other lovers, but they were eating from their hands. He longed, he longed to feed them and with something much greater than the food of the earth. Let's pick up the rest of the story in chapter 2, verse 2. Plead with your mother, Israel, plead, for she is not my God's wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they are the children of whoredoms, for their mother hath played the harlot. She that conceived them hath done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then was it better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof and will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And now I will discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and none shall deliver her out of my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to, to cease, her feast days, her new moons and her sabbaths and all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she has said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, wherein she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with earrings and her jewels, and she went after other lovers, and forgot me, saith the Lord. Hosea chapter 2. Immediately after this, he writes, Therefore, behold, I will lure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her. And I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley 
of a core for a door of hope. And she shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me my husband, and shalt call me no more master. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. In that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, and with the fowls of the heaven, and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth. And I will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth. The word betroth is in reference to marriage. But during Hosea's time it meant much more. It was a binding engagement, a deep commitment between two families for a future permanent relationship. I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. And I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. And thou shalt know the Lord, and it shall come to pass. And that day I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And, it will, and I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy <clears throat> upon me, upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them, which were not my people, Thou art my people. And they shall say, Thou art my God. Hosea chapter 2. Oh, how his heart turned within him as he considered what to do with his unfaithful lover. Hosea 11.8 Anger pitted against love, it leaves a heart in ruins. To continue to love the very object that had become the source of his rage seemed unfathomable. Yet to punish them for all of their iniquities by removing all traces of love seemed too harsh for even the most unfaithful of lovers. What was a heart to do? This was a crucial moment for God. What side of him would win out, the judge or the lover? What we all would come to believe was most true about him was on the line here. How would he reveal himself? On the one hand, he can show that he was indeed the righteous, sovereign judge by unleashing his wrath and vengeance upon them as he stripped them of everything and put them to an open shame. On the other, he could forgive them despite all they had done and show the merciful, loving God that he was. Hosea chapter 14. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from them. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread, and his beauty shall be as the olive tree, and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. For me thy fruit is found. In the end, love prevailed, and God's heart took center stage. This is not to say that God is non-sovereign, imperfect, or changeable in any way. His character and nature never waver, and he does judge. Of course he does. Sin has to be. There are very real and dire consequences to our unholy actions and lack of reverence toward his sovereignty. The wrath of God is not a pleasant thing. Just ask Uzzah, Nadab, and Abihu, Ananias, and his wife, Zephira. All men and women instantly struck dead for the acts of irreverence and deceit. A drastic reminder that although God is love-driven, he will do what he has to, to remind us that he is indeed still God and is not to be taken lightly. He greatly desires our love, but he also greatly desires our respect and holy fear. Hell is a real real place, and apart from choosing God's love offered through the outstretched arms of Christ, 
we are all destined for it. We see this judgment of God with Israel as well. They themselves eventually were blinded because of their sin, and besides a small remnant will continue to be until the time of the Gentiles has come to a close. So keep in mind, what we are seeing here is not what God is not. It is what he most is. It is what he wants us to ultimately remember him by, his love. So I'm going to go ahead and end there, guys, and take a break. And um, I will release more of the book on audio form in another entry shortly. But I hope you enjoy those three chapters. You can always pick up the book in the Kindle edition or in the paperback edition through Amazon, Barnes & Nobles. You can also get it straight from our website through our ministry, wearefiresdaughters.com. And if you want like a signed copy or something of that nature, you can you can purchase it there. But uh, thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, please feel free to send us emails or messages about any any questions or anything that you may have. Any um, Anything you want to share with us, we'd love to hear your stories. Um, you can email us at info at wearefirestarters.com. Or you can find us online through Facebook or our website and also send us messages there. Love you guys and appreciate you listening.